Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In 1942, more than 100,000 people of Japanese descent, many American citizens, were sent to government camps after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. That was 75 years ago, but that dark moment in time is being recalled in recent weeks as the Trump administration, citing terrorism threats, seeks to limit who can enter this country. Today we ask, what can we learn from history? We'll hear the personal stories of some Japanese Americans who studied at UConn during World War II, men like George Fukui and Shiro Aisawa. The university was one of just a few hundred that accepted male internees to study during the war. We'll find out why. And later, a Lafayette College professor will join us to compare reactions to Trump's executive order on immigration today to what Americans felt in 1942, after President Roosevelt signed the executive order that led to the creation of government camps for people of Japanese descent. Now joining me now in studio is Glenn Matoma. He's director of the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center and assistant professor of human rights and education at the University of Connecticut. Glenn, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Lucy. It's great to be here. So if we remember history, we know there was a lot of fear after uh, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in December 1941 that thrust us into uh, World War II. And two months later, in February of 1942, President Roosevelt issued an executive order, 9066. Tell us about that executive order. Sure. That executive order um, came in the wake of uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, as, as you mentioned, and it was designed to uh, assist with the military security of the Western United States. It didn't mention Japanese Americans specifically, but what it did was empower the Department of War to declare zones of exclusions from which civilians could be excluded, um, and that the War Department could also designate particular segments of the civilian population to be excluded. So it really empowered and set the stage for Japanese-American internment. Um, I think that the, the order itself uh, you know, can be read in a very uh, open way, uh, but certainly the plans were in place for exactly the uh, um, uh, the policies that were to follow. And so the West Coast was considered a military area. So the military could go in and remove and evacuate many of these uh, people of Japanese descent, many Japanese Americans, second generation. That's absolutely right. And, and an important point to, to remember, of course, is that while the West Coast of the continental United States did contain a relatively large number of Japanese uh, and Japanese-American residents, a far higher number and proportion of the population lived in the Hawaiian Islands. And these uh, uh, individuals, uh, both of uh, Japanese descent and uh, Japanese-American uh, citizenship, were never rounded up and put into camps, despite the fact that any argument you could make with respect to their uh, uh, threat to security on the West Coast would certainly have held in, uh, in Hawaii. 
Now, one of the reasons we're doing this show today is because of this interesting um, angle uh, at UConn, the fact that UConn was one of, of several hundred universities to then start to accept some uh, male Japanese Americans to complete their, their studies. They may have been studying at a California institution, but after uh, the uh, executive order, they and their families were then sent to these camps in remote parts of the country. Now, how did that come to be? Sure. Well, uh, so the uh, Japanese American Student Relocation Program originated in uh, late 1942 when the American Friends Service Committee, um, which uh, is a Quaker organization that has long dedicated itself um, uh, to peace and social justice, identified Japanese American students, particularly college students as well as graduating high school students, as a population their networks could assist. They had a strong network of um, uh, associates within higher education, uh, and they worked closely with the War Relocation Authority, which was the civilian agency of the federal government, uh, to establish this program whereby Japanese-American students uh, of college age uh, could apply uh, to universities primarily in the Midwest and East Coast of the United States. Uh, they worked also with the universities themselves to make sure that those students would have um, uh, a proper reception, uh, would be oriented to their local communities, uh, and would be able to pursue a course of study appropriate to their interests and skills. Take us back to that time, Glenn. I mean, how was how did they get how did the Quakers get buy-in from these universities, including UConn, to allow um, these students of Japanese descent right after uh, we were thrust into GAN to World War II after the attack on Pearl Harbor? You know, how were they able to get that, um, you know, in agreement? Sure. Well, I think uh, it's, it's important to remember that uh, the crisis of the Second World War wasn't just a military crisis, but it was an ideological crisis. And higher education in particular had been thinking through for many years their role in upholding democratic values. Um, Nazi Germany, uh, which uh, was dominant on the world scene through the late 1930s, um, was in many ways a leader in education. And much of what had happened within Germany at the time uh, happened with the active collusion of the institutions of higher education um, uh, in that country. And many leaders in higher education in the United States reflected on what it meant to be a university and a college in a free society and what their role was. And so when the Quakers came to them with this project, many of the leaders of those universities, including Albert Jorgensen at the University of Connecticut, understood that partially their role would be to demonstrate the value of democratic inclusivity and to treating people with equal dignity regardless of their national origin, race, mm -hmm. or or frankly, immigration status. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're looking back at history, exactly in 1942, February 19th, 1942, when President Roosevelt signed the executive order that led to the creation of internment camps for people of Japanese descent. Uh, we're talking about the fact that some of those uh, young Japanese Americans were able to study at universities, including at UConn. Uh, one of these students was George Fukui. George was a college student in California when President Roosevelt issued that order. He and his family were sent to an internment camp in Utah. 
Here he is speaking at UConn in 1995 about what it was like entering that internment camp for the first time. And essentially, when they close the gate behind you, it's kind of an awesome feeling. Uh, suddenly you feel that your freedom is gone, possibly your dignity, uh, security, etc. Um, but then, you know, instead of looking on the dark side, I thought, indeed, uh, uh, I could contribute something to the uh, society within the fence. And we heard, again, Glenn Matoma in studio with us, director of the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center at UConn, that it was through the help of this Quaker group, American Friends Service Committee, that George and others were able to study at UConn. How many students um, were able to study during this time? I think we had a total of about 18 that uh, um, spent time at UConn in one fashion or another uh, over the course of the Second World War. Now, George Fukui has since passed away from the time of that recording in 1995, but joining us now by phone is his daughter, Lisa Fukui, who lives in Virginia. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. So did your father talk about his experiences at the internment camp when you were growing up? Yes, he did. He was very vocal about it, and I think that's very rare for um, Japanese Americans who were in the internment camps. Many of the families just wanted to to, uh, put that in the past. But he spoke of the University of Connecticut with great fondness um, for the rest of his life, that it gave him opportunities that he never would have had had he uh, stayed in California. Um, Just the the fact that people were kind to him and to my mother um, from the moment they arrived on the campus. Uh, We have uh, more of the recording of your father speaking in 1995 um, at UConn. Um, Here he is talking about the conditions at that internment camp in Utah. The living quarters itself initially was a horse barrack that was abandoned by a horse maybe a week before, at least from the smell. Uh, They just whitewashed it. Uh, Subsequently, they did build somewhat permanent barracks, which was cleaner, but no ceiling, uh, no room dividers. Uh, People hung up sheets so that uh, you have some privacy. So here he is talking about how um, he and, and his parents were forced to, to leave their home to live in a horse barn in Utah. How did that make you feel when you heard those stories, Lisa? It just became part of the fabric of my uh, youth and my adulthood, listening to these stories. And I remember as a teenager arguing with him and saying, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you fight back? Um, and he said that was, <laughs> they were behind barbed wire. They really couldn't fight back. But he did other things, and as as an adult, I realize now that um, the way out for him was education, and that's why he was so proud to um, be accepted at the University of Connecticut. It did change his life. I wanted to go back to Glenn. Um, She mentioned that her father said that, you know, they didn't want to fight back. And I understand that during that time there were many Japanese Americans who felt like, well, if I went willingly to these camps, it would show that I, too, am patriotic. I am an American. Yes, absolutely, right. As as with all um, as with all communities, there's a diverse response when uh, trauma strikes of one kind or another, and certainly we have stories of those who do resist, like uh, Gordon Hirabayashi uh, and Fred Korematsu, uh, who have come down to us as very significant and important heroes, um, but also the range of others who adapted, accommodated, uh, and tried to get on with their lives in some substantial way. And I think m- many of them, um, including my own grandparents, looked at uh, the opportunities that they were presented with after incarceration uh, as an opportunity to demonstrate their Americanness and their 100% uh, loyalty to the United States. 
even if they retained uh, in their own hearts and in their own understanding uh, an awareness of um, the conflicted nature of that, uh, of that loyalty. Now, Lisa Fukui, you also mentioned your mother. They, they met at the camp? They met in the camps, and they were married um, when my dad was at his second week at the University of Connecticut. So they had, they had a very busy uh, first semester there. And what did, did your mother also talk about um, her time there as your father? She did. Uh, my father was an optimist, so he could turn the negatives into positives. Um, I think it really affected her in a different way. I think it made her um, probably a, a little bit more bitter than, than my father. Mm. I understand after the war, your parents decided not to go back to California. You know, why was that? Um, they decided to stay on the East Coast because... Um, there were many more opportunities, and they felt that um, what had happened to them as a result of the internment camps, and my dad was um, a junior at the University of California at Berkeley in 1939, and he was asked to withdraw and was sent to the internment camp. So he, he said, looking back, he said, no, I don't think I want to go back to California. I think I want to stay on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And Glenn, was that also something that was common, where you saw these Japanese Americans that were lucky enough to be able to finish their degrees in the Midwest, in the Northeast, they didn't go back home? Absolutely, yes. So many of them did not, uh, you know, both for a, a up reasons that they found their, their new homes quite accommodating and they had made a life for themselves in one way or another, but also um, uh, precisely for the, uh, the reasons uh, um, that... Uh, that um, Sorry, Uh, Lisa outlines, um, they were aware that uh, they had uh, local populations that were hostile to them in California um, and that going back posed a risk uh, to reliving those experiences. Uh, It's also true that many of them, when they were interned, sold off their homes, sold off their businesses, sold off their livelihoods. So there really wasn't much to go back to for them. Um, and so uh, for those reasons, the, many of them took up roots elsewhere in the United States. And Lisa, um, you mentioned that your father spoke fondly about his time at UConn. Tell us, um, you know, what happened with him? Um, obviously, he graduated from the university, and what did he end up doing? He ended up um, getting his Ph.D. at Cornell, and from there he became a research scientist um, in immunology and microbiology, and he had a very... Um, happy career, um, and he attributes much of that to the University of Connecticut, because without their offer to him to complete his college degree, um, he knows that he knew, looking back, that um, his life would have been very, very different. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about a time in our nation's history, right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, when President Roosevelt signed an executive order that directly affected many Japanese Americans. Hundreds of thousands were interned, uh, more than 100,000 at these camps. Some were college students. And did you know UConn was one of those universities that agreed to take in these internees so they could continue studying towards their degrees? Uh, Lisa Fukui's father was one, George Fukui. When we come back from the break, we're going to find out more about UConn's decision. And later, how does that moment in time when people were rounded up based on the race compared to the climate now, where terrorism has fueled distrust about Muslims, but also a time when there are widespread protests against the president and his, his administration after that controversial immigration order. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Back after a short break.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. So we can all learn, <coughs> learn a lesson from this sad chapter in our history. And that is, in a time of crisis, we can't depend on the Constitution or our government for our security. Our security can only come from mutual trust, understanding, and tolerance. That's Shiro Aisawa speaking in 1995 at UConn. He was among about 18 uh, Japanese-American students who enrolled at UConn during World War II. He also was from California. He and his family were sent to an internment camp in Arizona after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And Shiro Aisawa went on to graduate from UConn in 1947. Today we're looking back at history. It's been 75 years since President Roosevelt signed an executive order forcing the detention of more than 100,000 people, many Japanese Americans, uh, in government camps. In studio with me is Glenn Matoma, director of the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center, assistant professor of human rights and education at UConn. And on the phone is Lisa Fukui. She's a Virginia resident, and she's the daughter of the late George Fukui, one of these Japanese-American men um, who studied at UConn during the war. Uh, joining us now in studio is Kathy Schlund-Viles. She's professor of English and director of the Asian and Asian-American Studies Institute at UConn, president of the Association for Asian-American Studies. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So um, I wanted to tell, hear more about the history of when UConn accepted these students. You know, how remarkable was it that the university um, thought to allow um, people like Shiro and George Fukui onto campus? I think that it's quite remarkable, even though other institutions uh, would accept Japanese-American students. There were about 4,000 who were eventually admitted to various educational institutions across the country. One important thing to note is that many of the institutions were small liberal arts colleges. So for those individuals who had been completing, tried to complete their degrees at universities, it was very rare for state institutions to actually admit Japanese American men. And one of the reasons for that is because of military funding and military research on these uh, particular campuses. So the, the very fact that somebody could come to the University of Connecticut, pursue an engineering degree or a degree in agriculture or science is pretty remarkable. Now, some of these um, students, uh, while they were continuing their studies, they were also drafted. Can we talk about a little bit about that? Um, that's an interesting story um, because, you know, one of the... One of the parts of the story that's so remarkable is, and this kind of corresponds to what Glenn put forth in terms of proving one's loyalty, is that Japanese-American men oftentimes would enlist, voluntarily enlist, or when they were drafted, they would very heroically serve um, to prove their citizenship and loyalty to the United States. So the most decorated uh, battalion in military history is the 442nd. Uh, the Go for Broke Battalion, um, which was uh, entirely Japanese-American. So, you know, when we think about World War II and that history, oftentimes the 442nd falls out of it. Now, Glenn, again, is here from uh, the Dodd Center at UConn. And tell us a little bit about the Dodd Center so people know what this is about. Sure, absolutely. So those clips you were playing earlier in the in the program come from uh, a 1995 symposium that the Dodd Center held commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Nuremberg Trials. 
And this symposium coincided with the founding and dedication of the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center, which is a, uh, a research center on the Storrs campus, uh, dedicated in the honor of Senator Thomas J. Dodd, who was a Connecticut senator for many years, father of uh, Senator Chris Dodd, uh, but really uh, began his public career as the executive trial counsel for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. Uh, where he worked alongside Justice Jackson to bring to justice the leaders of Nazi Germany after the Second World War. And this is a pivotal moment uh, in world history and a pivotal moment explicitly in the history of human rights. And when the University of Connecticut uh, decided to build a large research facility on its campus and name it in the honor of Thomas Dodd, they dedicated that institution to the preservation and promotion of that legacy of human rights and international justice that Tom Dodd helped lay down in 1945 and 1946. And so this symposium that we held in the year that it was founded was dedicated to exploring exactly all of those dimensions. And I think the inclusion of the panel of Japanese-American interned citizens um, uh, was an important reminder that while World War II presented us an opportunity to show leadership in the world on human rights, it's not as if the United States with, was without blame or blemish during that period, mm -hmm. and that we as a country uh, can revisit that past and understand both our moments of uh, triumph and heroism, as in the Nuremberg Tribunals, but also our moments of failure, uh, which uh, Japanese-American internment certainly was. You mentioned uh, Fred Korematsu earlier. Um, he was someone that, that uh, challenged this, uh, this order to go to an internment camp, um, and he was detained. His case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of that executive order by President Roosevelt. That's absolutely right, and I think that was uh, the, the failure um, that uh, Shiro uh, Aisawa was talking about in that clip was that we do have strong institutions. Uh, we do have um, uh, a, a, a strong constitutional uh, protection of individual rights, but those are only as strong as the individuals inhabiting those, uh, those positions of authority. And unless there is the will um, to stand up for what is unpopular, um, we, can, we can see our freedoms and our rights eroded. And I think that uh, that's certainly uh, the lesson uh, that we can take away from uh, internment. And a little later in the show, we're going to look at a little bit more about the climate of, of, of the United States after that attack on Pearl Harbor and compare it to the climate today, um, again, with uh, widespread protests uh, based on this uh, executive order by President Trump. That's coming up a little bit later. But I wanted to get back to uh, Lisa Fukui. She is the, the daughter of the late George Fukui, uh, one of, uh, of more than a dozen Japanese-American men who studied at UConn during World War II. You know, Lisa, you mentioned that your father was very open about his experience. Your mother as well. Um, they both met at the internment camp, uh, married when he was at, at UConn. Uh, but how did this story, the story of your family, pass down through the generations? It was A lot of it was uh, verbal because my father loved to talk and he loved to share his stories, which I'm so glad he did, with the family and with anyone who was willing to listen because I know he felt it was very important that people not forget. And do you have children? I do not. <laughs> But you, you've seen the story passed down to the next generation? Yes, uh, and it's, I, will, I also will speak to anyone who's, who's curious and who's interested. Mm. 
Um, Kathy uh, Schlund-Viles is here. She uh, is the director of the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at UConn, president of the Association for Asian American Studies. You know, I'm curious, Kathy, how after the war um, you saw enrollment at UConn um, continue in terms of accepting more Asian American students. That's a very interesting question. Um, you know, one of the struggles that Japanese American students faced is that in many institutions, they were the first population of color, right? So, you know, we're talking about a time where, you know, post-war, post-1965 Immigration Act, you start seeing a profound shift demographically, like, you know, in terms of the bodies and the kind of racial categories. But in terms of Asian American enrollment, we don't really see that on the rise until the 1980s. Um, And that's largely due to the fact that prior to 1965, Asian immigrants were by and large excluded from coming to the United States. So after 1965, immigration policy opens up so that it's no longer based on nation state quotas or, you know, kind of racially, uh, you know, racially biased or prejudiced. And so we we kind of see that migration. Um, But in terms of uh, student enrollment, we don't really see a lot of Asian Americans in higher ed until the 1980s. And what was that climate like on campus um, so that you saw more Asian American students coming to UConn in the late 80s? I understand, though, there were some um, headline-grabbing news that happened then as well. Right. So um, even though UConn has this wonderful history vis-a-vis Japanese American internment and admission of Japanese American students, on December 3rd, 1987, Uh, which is referred to as the incident on campus, eight Asian-American students were uh, victimized uh, by two individuals um, en route to a a semi-formal in Tolland. And what had happened was that um, these two individuals had proceeded to um, yell racial slurs, spit on the students to the point that the students had requested the bus driver to turn the bus around. And the bus driver said, well, we can't really return back to UConn because we're supposed to go to this dance. And the conditions facing those students worsened. The bullying worsened. It got um, incredibly um, just violent. And the students ended up hiding in a closet for the remainder of the dance. So they finally returned back to UConn, and they tried to appeal to various um, authorities to really kind of make a complaint that they were racially targeted en route to this dance. And when they tried to go to UConn authorities, they were told that since the dance occurred off campus, that it was really a state police issue. Mm -hmm. And when they tried to appeal to state police, the state police said, you're UConn students. It is actually a UConn issue. So we have this kind of liminality, right? Like the students were caught in the middle. Um, So there was really no representation or advocacy for these students. The administration was incredibly slow at responding. And so it really took, you know, more than three years and a faculty hunger strike um, to actually push the administration to think about um, starting something like the Asian American Cultural Center and at that time the Asian American Studies Institute. So the center was created. Um, you're director of that cultural center. Oh, actually, the institute. The institute. So, yeah. And so how long did it take before you know things eased on campus for uh, students of color, especially those that were Asian? I think that this is always a, a process, right? So even though we don't hear about various microaggressions, that's not saying that they don't occur. I mean, I do think that you know it's important to note that the cultural center and the institute were formed and founded in 1993. Right. But, you know, even as recently as last year, there are still incidents that occur on campus. Right. 
But I do think that because Asian Americans now occupy somewhat of a prominent position in admissions, that it's not the same kind of um, – those students are not facing the same – um, struggles or like kind of reactions that they did in the 1980s when it was a relatively new population. And what is the climate today on campus, especially when we when we are talking about um, uh, news that's hit, you know, hitting the headlines about how people, uh, because of their religion or their race, are treated uh, differently? What what are the what's the sentiment on campus? How are students talking about this? Well, I have to say that, you know, one of the things that I always stress as an Asian Americanist is that Asian America is a very heterogeneous population, right? So it's not just about Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, but, you know, we have South Asian Americans, Southeast Asian Americans, et cetera. But what I've been really heartened by is the amount of solidarity that I've seen on campus by way of protest or by way of, you know, kind of vigil Whenever there's an incident that occurs that it may be like an uh, like an Islamophobic incident, students are actually coming out and supporting um, individuals in a way that like kind of corresponds to that sentiment that Lisa is talking about, like what her her father encountered at UConn. And Glenn, can you add to that what you noticed as someone with, affiliated with the Dodd Center? Sure. Yeah. Well, and and just to go back, I mean, I think it's really important to highlight the role that leadership plays. Right. The reception that the Japanese American students received when they arrived at the University of Connecticut owed itself entirely to the dedication and hard work of advocates on the ground within the administration and among the faculty. So not only did uh, Albert Jorgensen, the president at the time, issue a statement to the entire uh, campus with respect that these students were coming and that we were going to welcome them and that they were American citizens and that they were here to study. And uh, But faculty, uh, like a professor of, the, of philosophy, uh, Paul Futsi, um, sponsored these students, brought them into his home, welcomed them at holiday gatherings, really made a concerted effort uh, to put forward a vision of America that was inclusive and embracing. And to the extent that Today, President Susan Herbst, as in her statement um, last week with respect to the executive order, is attempting to put forward the same kind of leadership that the University of Connecticut will remain an open, inclusive, and tolerant space. I think we'll see conditions on the university campus um, remain one uh, that is uh, strong and not divided. Mm. And do you believe that a lot of people, um, especially on the campus, know the history, the fact that the university accepted uh, people who were vilified uh, uh, during the war? No. (laughs) And why is that? Um, I think that, you know, it's a history that, um, you know, this is an American story and this is about American history. But the problem is that we kind of silo it in an Asian American studies class, right? So so in, in many ways, like I teach Asian American studies, I always point this out, and I always show a picture of the Wilbur Cross building, and it's this beautiful, you know, image with the Japanese American students. N- students these days do not consider that like a building of significance because it's where you go for financial aid, um, you know, so... Um, But I think that it's because we don't really consider Japanese-American internment a part of American history. We don't teach it that way. It's always about Asian-American history Mm -hmm. that this story gets buried. Uh, Lisa Fukui, again, is on the phone. She lives in Virginia. Um, Her father, the late George Fukui, was one of these Japanese-Americans who studied at UConn. You know, throughout his life, uh, Lisa, you said that he was uh, very optimistic. Uh, But did he he feel like he was, you know, still being judged because he was of Japanese descent? 
I think that he did. I mean, he became a very distinguished research scientist, but I think in the back of his mind, he pushed, oh, I know, he pushed himself, he challenged himself um, to be better, to prove to uh, white society uh, that he was an intelligent man and that he wanted to also um, make it very clear that he did not want um, people of any ethnicity to be incarcerated again without due process. Mm. Um, if he were al alive today, what do you think he would, um, you know, what his views would be about current events? He would be very upset, um, and I know that he would be a very active voice um, to remind people that we need to forgive uh, and to not be prejudiced. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about history, specifically why UConn opened up its campus to Japanese-American male students during World War II after the, these students and their families were sent to internment camps. Coming up, we're going to examine the climate in America during the time of President Roosevelt's executive order that created the camps. And we fast forward to the last two weeks as protests broke out nationwide in reaction to Trump's order on immigration. Also during the campaign, talk of a Muslim ban. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, from self-service menus to self-driving cars to androids around the water cooler, on the next Where We Live, the pros and cons of automation. We'll talk with a team of economists and technology experts, and we want to hear from you. Is your job at risk of becoming obsolete? Join us on Thursday. Now, today, where we live, we've been hearing about UConn's role during uh, World War II when Japanese-American students were welcomed on campus to complete their studies, despite being sent to internment camps. And that happened after President Roosevelt signed an executive order, February 19, 1942, authorizing the roundup of, quote, people from military areas deemed necessary or desirable. Now, the order never mentioned people of Japanese descent, but after that EO was signed, the West Coast was designated a military area and more than 100,000 people of Japanese descent were sent to live in remote government camps. Now, how did most Americans react to Roosevelt's executive order back then? Joining us now by phone is Stephen White. He's a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Government and Law at Lafayette College. Stephen, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, you recently uh, wrote an analysis in the Washington Post uh, comparing uh, the sentiment after, uh, in 1942, after that attack of uh, Pearl Harbor, to what's been going on now in recent weeks. Tell us a little bit about, um, were Americans supportive of that executive order just two months after Pearl Harbor? Uh, yeah, so Americans overwhelmingly were fairly supportive of the executive order. Uh, this was really the first war in American history where we have really wide-scale American public opinion polling on political issues. And so just to give an example, in December of 1942, uh, the Gallup organization asked whether, quote, the Japanese who were moved inland from the Pacific Coast should be allowed to return to the Pacific Coast when the war is over. And so it's kind of an extreme question, not even do you support internment, but even after the war ends, should they be allowed to return back to their homes? And only 35% of Americans said they should be allowed to return home at that point. Mm. Um, a much larger percentage, 48%, said they should not be. And when they actually followed up and said, well, what should happen to these people? The majority of people said they should be sent back to Japan 
or just put out of the country in some way. Mm. And another 5 or 10% said they should simply be killed. And so you see very strong support for this extreme action uh, in this time of war. So 63% in that Gallup poll in December of 42 said, send uh, people of Japanese descent back to J- Japan. Uh, Glenn Matoma, who's here in studio with me, uh, just to talk about the numbers. So um, many of these people interned were American citizens born here. Absolutely, right? Yeah, and I, I, I think that, uh, you know, what, what Stephen's pointing to is the fact that Rights generally are not the fruit of democracy. They're actually the foundation of democracy, right? So that preserving them or they're necessarily precisely because the guarantees and protections that they afford are not necessarily secure in the context of public opinion, the shifts of public opinions, uh, the tumult of ongoing events. And, uh, and, and what could be more tumultuous than the outbreak of the Second World War when the entire country was mobilized in this life or death struggle of global proportions? It's not really surprising, particularly because the vast majority of those uh, individuals will never have met or seen or interacted with anyone of Japanese descent, citizen or non-citizen alike. Mm. Now, at the same time, a Reuters uh, poll uh, right after the uh, executive order on immigration that President Trump issued uh, in late January found that 49% of Americans agreed with this executive order, um, while 41% disagreed, 10% offered uh, no opinion. So uh, back to uh, uh, Stephen White uh, from Lafayette College. Again, you wrote this piece in the Washington Post. Talk about the similarities between these two orders. Well, I think, you know, the context are different in some ways. As I sort of mentioned, World War II is a really full-scale total war in a way that current foreign policy uh, really isn't. But I think the real similarity is that both illustrate the dangers that can arise when security concerns take on these sort of racialized overtones. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, it's notable that kind of how, you know, FDR didn't actually include the words Japanese-American, kind of like how Trump didn't include the words Muslim, but nonetheless that led to these sort of discriminatory outcomes. And so I think, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, Americans do often come to view these as mistakes. But in the moment, it's much more difficult for people to sort of see this. Mm. And so I guess the challenge we have is figuring out if there's a way to get people to realize this in the moment when there's still a chance to sort of prevent it before it's too late. And all we can really do is sort of try to make amends. So back in 1942, you didn't see widespread protests uh, because we were in a war. Um, these days, after that immigration order, um, we know there were protests at airports around the country and elsewhere. Uh, people worried about um, their rights. That this People believe that that order was unconstitutional. So it's certainly interesting, even though there are you know, 49 percent of Americans, according to this recent poll, that support the immigration order, people are more uh, forward to come out and say, this is why we protest it. Yeah, I think, you know, we've also seen some more recent polling uh, from Quinnipiac that shows it a little bit more in the opposition direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what you're seeing is a much more outspoken sensibility. Maybe that's probably because World War II was this total war, and so the Japanese-American Citizens League was very reticent to speak out in the context of the war. They were inclined to try a bit of a more accommodationist approach, and we're not really seeing that right now. Mm-hmm. And if you look underneath the polling today, what you see is that Americans are actually very deeply divided. Most Republicans support the order. Most Democrats oppose the order. And we didn't really see that kind of partisan polarization on Japanese internment. It was much more widely supported, I think. Mm-hmm. I wanted to take a call now. Uh, Sam's calling. Sam, you're on the show. Yes. Hi. Uh, first thing I'd like to say is uh, I am a 1986 graduate of UConn. I was always proud of my school, more proud after the ladies uh, had their 100th victory, and even more proud today to hear about the uh, 
the early interaction of the Japanese Americans with the University of Connecticut. Further, I'd like to say that the media here, I, I think, is going to the extreme to sensationalize the the comparison between what's going on today and what happened during World War II. During World War II, people were actually rounded up and imprisoned. Now, that is not what's happening today. I think had an executive order been issued then just simply denying Japanese people from coming to the country, I don't think we'd even be having this conversation. Another major difference then is at that time, we were directly at war with Japan who attacked the mainland United States and we knew who the combatants were. It would have, I don't think anybody would have objected if we simply put in a travel ban stopping anyone from Japan from coming to the United States. I absolutely agree that it was absolutely wrong to round up people and imprison them. But if you look at today's situation, for anybody to think we're not at war, they're forgetting the fact that thousands of people died on 9-11 and hundreds of people have been died, killed around the country in different terrorist attacks. The biggest difference between then and now is then we had known combatants. Now we're not at war with any nation. We're at war with a radical belief. I'm not even going to attach a religion to it. But in today's climate, we do know what countries foster that belief. So I, I think it's it's a bit of sensationalism, and I think the media is guilty of, of adding to the, hype, the hysteria and the hype because the media wants to do things that are going to generate ratings that are going to generate listening even that's why i'm listening to this show today so what's your your take on i i think it's an injustice to even compare denying entry to a country with imprisoning people they're two different yeah, well, scenarios Sam Yes, yeah, Sam, thank you for your comments, and you're, you're welcome to have your opinion. Um, you mentioned you're not going to attach uh, a religion to this, but our president did. Um, would our guests like to comment? Well, um, you know, I, I do do see the value of, like, dealing with the historical specificity of World War II versus the present moment. Like, one of the reasons why you didn't need an order to ban Japanese from coming to the United States is that that had actually been handled through a series of immigration restrictions that extended back to 1882. So 1882 is the um, Chinese Exclusion Act. Those restrictions and prohibitions continued until 1943 uh, with the passage of the Magnuson Act. Um, Japanese migration to the United States began to be curtailed in 1907 with the Gentlemen's Agreement. And in 1917, the United States passed an Asiatic Barred Zones Act, which basically prohibited Asian immigrants from coming to the United States. And that was reiterated in 1924. So I think that when we get to the point of Japanese-American internment, you know, to really reiterate this, two-thirds of those interned were Japanese-Americans, those individuals who had been born in the United States. So you really didn't need an order to ban immigration to the United States because that had already been legislatively handled. And that, again, is Kathy Schlin-Viles, who's director of the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at UConn. Um, Stephen, Stephen White, who's uh, on the phone, again, a visiting uh, assistant professor in the Department of Government and Law at Lafayette College. Uh, you wrote a piece in the Washington Post, uh, many Americans support Trump's immigration order. Many Americans back Japanese internment camps, too. Um, what do you think of our listeners' sentiment that uh, this should not be uh, compared? Well, I think it's certainly fair to note the differences. I mean, it is a very different context. It's not literally the same action. But I think even though there are these important differences, there is sort of a general lesson here, which is that we should be suspicious when, in the name of security, actions are taken that have some discriminatory effect that's based on a group's sort of race, ethnicity, 
national origin, religion, uh, etc. And so I think it's certainly true that it's not exactly the same, but I think we should be able to draw lessons from history. And in particular, I think sometimes we forget with Japanese internment just how widely supported it was at the time, and it was only later realized mm-hmm. many to be this huge mistake. And so I think that lesson can be true for us today, which is to say many Americans support this order now, but I suspect decades from now we'll look back and view it probably as a mistake that had a discriminatory effect. You know, we mentioned uh, Fred Korematsu earlier, uh, Glenn Matomas here from the Dodd Research Center um, at UConn. You know, he, his case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and um, it was, uh, they, they cited in favor of that executive order by President Roosevelt. I wanted to read a quote. It fits in here with what we're talking about. Um, in late 2014, the late Justice Antonin Scalia denounced that decision, that decision from 1944 from the Supreme Court. But he issued a warning. He told law students in Hawaii, quote, you're kidding yourself if you think the same thing will not happen again. I would not be surprised to see it happen again in time of war. It's no justification but it's the reality, and that speaks to the sentiment of what you just mentioned, uh, Stephen. You know, we just have a, a few more minutes, and I wanted to, to go back to uh, Lisa Fukui. Again, her father was George Fukui. He has uh, uh, since passed away um, from the recordings that we were hearing earlier in the show. And uh, I wanted to play a clip um, from 1995 when they interviewed your father at UConn. I think the important thing is the United States government never, ever incarcerates any other citizen without due process. And you told us earlier, Lisa, if you believe if your father was alive today, that uh, recent events would, would, would upset him because of his uh, experience, uh, his family's experience. Yes, um, we can draw similarities, and uh, it's based on, it's, it's sad that today we're faced with very similar similarities where um, a lot of uh, mi- minorities um, are being looked at with suspicion, um, and I think that's wrong. And if he was still alive, I, I know that he would be very active um, and a voice to say to speak up and, and remind people of what happened in the past and that it's d- different but yet similar and that it can happen again. Let's not allow this to happen. Do you think that this is being sensationalized, this idea of talking about history during the climate that we're in? No, I don't think it's being sensationalized. I think that most Americans don't even know what happened during World War II. Most of my friends don't remember or don't know. Uh, And I just think it's important for people today to learn about what happened 75 years ago and just to think about it. Um, we know that that executive order that was issued by President Trump in the end of January uh, didn't send anyone to prison. There were no roundups. But we know people were detained at airports, people that have a rights as permanent legal residents, people with green cards who were detained. Some were deported. The court stepped in. Uh, but we don't know what tomorrow will bring. I mean, what are your uh, closing thoughts on, again, what we can learn from history? Glenn, I'll start with you. Sure. I think one of the things to keep in mind, uh, both in the question of this comparison with Japanese-American internment um, and in, uh, in terms of this, this broader uh, concern about poor decision-making in, in times of stress, which, uh, which, which certainly this highlights, um, is the idea that uh, part of what we should be thinking about is what kind of response we want to have when we feel threatened and what it is that is actually under threat here. The Second World War was a threat to the American way of life, uh, to democracy, to justice, and human rights. And we could pretend that in order to defend those things, what we needed to do was to begin to eliminate freedoms, right? To take away rights, to be more secure that way. 
But I think history has shown that, in fact, that's a false trade-off, that one of the ways you counter threats to your way of life is by embracing it and celebrating it even more fully. And one of the problems with the president's executive order, the current president's executive order, is that it meets fear with fear, right? It meets um, uh, a hatred of freedom with more, uh, with more constraint, more limitation, more walls, more borders, right? More exclusion. And if we are going to prove that the American experiment is one um, that is worth preserving into the future, we need to live those values in everything we do. That's Glenn Matoma, director of the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center, also assistant professor of human rights and education at UConn. Glenn, thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Now, Kathy's also in studio with us. Any closing thoughts on, on the climate that we're in? Um, I'm actually a bit, even though it's very stressful and very, um, you know, disconcerting, I am really heartened by the acts of individuals and by communities who are really standing up. I mean, this is like that level of protest is something that you did not see in response to Japanese-American internment and incarceration, right? And I do think that like the memory of internment as, you know, kind of evidenced by the show is really significant in arming those protesters with kind of a usable past. And so I'm, I'm actually a bit more heartened I think, than my colleague in studio. <laughs> Thank you, Ka uh, Kathy Schlin-Viles, professor of English, director of the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at the University of Connecticut. She's also president of the Association for Asian American Studies. Uh, thank you, Kathy, for your time today. Also uh, on the phone with us was Stephen White, visiting assistant professor in the Department of Government and Law at Lafayette College, author of the Washington Post analysis. Many Americans support Trump's immigration order. Many Americans backed Japanese internment camps, too. Stephen, thank you for your time. Thank you. Also, Lisa Fukui, thank you so much. She lives in Virginia. She's the daughter of the former UConn student, George Fukui. He has since passed away, uh, one of uh, more than a dozen that studied at UConn, uh, Japanese Americans, uh, during the times of internment during World War II. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Special thanks to WMPR intern Ali Oshinsky, who helped produce today's show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.